Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is life. Your word is light. And uh, we can rest in your word, Father, because your word is your wisdom for us. Lord, I thank you that um, we can uh, sometimes just turn off all those subjective truths that keep on shouting at us. And we can just look at your word and know, Father, that that is, that is normalcy. That is our point of reference. That is what we hold on to. That's our anchor. That's our hope. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never. It will remain forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so as you may know already, uh, we are working through the book of John. And so we got to chapter 11 two weeks ago. Then last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we saw how the Father affirms the Son. And the Son reveals the Father. And the Holy Spirit came to point to Christ, Jesus. And uh, everything the Holy Spirit does at all times has to do with Jesus Christ. For instance, he says that he convicts the world of sin, and that sin is the fact that they reject Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit's work is always to reveal the Son. Therefore, when you come into a service where Jesus Christ is lifted up, where He is the central focus, uh, that, is, that is your cue, that is your, that is your proof that the Holy Spirit is in fact there. When Jesus is lifted up. But today we're going to continue now in the next chapter. John chapter 12. This is where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And um, I think I I might just say, so you know yesterday it was kind of strange. I started working out and I don't quite know what all I did. But I pulled a muscle in my back. And so Han was helping me last night putting these chairs out. And as I pulled up, picked up a couple of chairs, I went... Something just snapped back there. <laughs> and so this morning, <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, so thank God we still had some of Jim's, Jim's like uh, walkers and stuff so I could get around the house. But then a hot shower just did, did the thing and a couple of excedrins. So if I don't make complete sense, you know why. <laughs> I think I took Excedrin, but I don't know. It's just working really well, <laughs> whatever it is. So somebody goes, oh, I thought you were going to pray for healing. I did. I prayed over the Excedrin, and the Lord's making it work. <laughs> it's working better than usual, but I appreciate it. And so <laughs> let's start. John chapter 12. And just to give you a little bit of backdrop, if you remember... The chapter that we dealt with in chapter 11, Jesus was having dinner at Bethsaida. This is where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lives. And he went for dinner there. They they gave him a big dinner. Many people showed up. It was a house filled with huge personalities. The disciples were there. Um, Of course, Judas was there. Jesus was there. Mary and Martha was there. And then their brother Lazarus, who just got uh, raised from the dead not too long before that, and so uh, on top of that, everybody wanted to kill Jesus, of course, by now. And every, now they also wanted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was proof of the fact that um, Jesus is for real. And so now we go into chapter 12 and we see that uh, because of the news and the rumors that have gone out, that Jesus, the man, uh, that, that uh, Jesus... The man who had raised Lazarus from the dead was on his way to Jerusalem 
uh, to celebrate Passover. This is all perfectly timed on God's calendar for Jesus to be in Jerusalem during Passover because Jesus was going to fulfill, He was going to fulfill um, the ceremonial law, which is Passover. He was going to fulfill that ceremonial law and He was going to become the Lamb of God slain for us. So there were two crowds, the crowd that, which was accompanying Jesus from Bethany. I, I, I said Bethsaida earlier, it's Bethany. Uh, the crowd that came with Jesus from Bethany and the crowd that uh, surged out of Jerusalem to see Him, these two crowds came together as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And at one stage, a census was taken of the lambs slain at a Passover. And the number that they came up with was 256,000 lambs slain during Passover. That was a big, brutal, bloody you know, slaughter, 256,000 lambs slain during that week. And there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb. And if you work that out, the estimate, if it's correct, means that there must have been as many as 2.7 million people that gathered in Jerusalem at that time in surrounding areas for the Passover feast. Now, if that figure is exaggerated, it remains true that the number that, that, that gathered there was enormous. A huge amount of people. So just to put in perspective what we're talking about here. And so let's pick it up in verse 12, John chapter 12. It says, On the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him. And they began shouting what? Hosanna. Right? Started shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Indeed, the King of Israel. So hardly anywhere have we seen such a display of, of deliberate courage as Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Why? Because don't forget, Jesus was an outlaw at the time. He was wanted. And uh, He was wanted by everybody in Jerusalem, all the leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, all the authorities wanted to kill Him there. And so self-preservation, of course, you know, would have made Jesus hide from everybody. Instead, he puts himself directly in front of those who are looking to kill him because he knows his hour has come. He's on God's perfect timing. How many of you know the Bible says that God orders the steps of the righteous? If he orders the steps of the righteous, is he not sovereign? Many in these crowds were, of course, greeting Jesus as a conqueror, right? He was, to them, a conquering king that was going to be like the head of their nation. Uh, uh, that is the atmosphere of the whole scene. So they greeted him with the words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna in Hebrew means save now. Save now. So you can imagine they had those palm leaves and they were waving those palm leaves as Jesus was coming in on a donkey and they were shouting, save now, save now. And they were basically putting pressure on and celebrating at both, both at the same time Jesus, um, believing that He was going to save them from Roman rule. They were oppressed by the Romans and Jesus was coming to be their political deliverer. 
So let's pick it up, the next verse, on verse 14. It says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, verse 15, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things for him. So the people who were with him when he, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the buzz in town was the fact that the man who raised Lazarus from the dead is here to celebrate Passover. And what's interesting here is it says these things, the disciple did not understand um, the fact that he came riding in on a donkey. The disciples didn't understand that at first, but when he was glorified, that's when their eyes opened and they realized, oh, now we see what this is all about. So what I wanted to clarify here for a second is what does it mean to say when he was glorified. Well, the Son of Man was glorified when He was crucified, when He was buried, and when He rose up out of the grave, and eventually when He went to heaven. This is the glorification of the Son. And so when He was glorified, then the disciples' eyes went open and they went, wow, now we understand that he came riding in on a donkey. You see, Jesus came not on a horse, but a donkey, and not even on a donkey, but a donkey's colt. And this, this means something. You see, in the Middle East, the donkeys are real small animals. They're actually smaller than what you realize when you go and see them. When you see pictures of it, they, they're tiny for some reason over there. But a grown man riding a donkey would at times have to lift his knees up so that his feet won't drag on the ground while he's on the back of a donkey. So you can imagine if that's what it looks like when a grown man is sitting on a donkey. Imagine what it looks like when a grown man is sitting on a donkey's colt. That's even smaller than a grown donkey. But here are three very important things for us and significant things for us to understand regarding Jesus' choice of coming in on a donkey. The first is that He was fulfilling prophecy. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. 518 years before Jesus rode in on a donkey, 518 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah foretold exactly how the Messiah would enter the city of Jerusalem. I want to read that to you. I want, to, I want you to look at this. This is so fantastic. This is 518 years before Jesus. It says in Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. 518 years before Jesus actually did that. When you read through your New Testament, you will find oftentimes in certain Bibles, Every prophecy that is quoted would be written in caps, all caps, or to be italicized, but it'll be marked 
maybe in the footnotes, where this prophecy comes from. But you'll be amazed when you start searching for it. How much of the Old Testament is in the New Testament quoted in the New Testament? And here is one of those cases. One of those cases where John says in John chapter 12, verse 15, he quotes, um, he quotes Zechariah and he says, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So Jesus, uh, well, let me say this. A couple of things really important. If Jesus fulfilled a passage in Zechariah, do you think Zechariah should be in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. right. If Jesus taught out of Deuteronomy, do you think the book of Deuteronomy should be in the Bible? Yeah. If Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies in the books of Moses, do you think Moses' book should be in the Bible? If Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies in every single one of the prophets, major and minor prophets, ought they not to be in the Bible? Yes, yeah, so this, this is one way of knowing that when we are reading those books of the Old Testament, we know that those books are from God and have been added to our canon of Scriptures. But another thing that's important to understand about this is when Jesus fulfills prophecies like that, which He fulfilled more than 500 of them, he fulfilled all the prophecies in Moses and all the prophecies in the prophets. Moses lived 1,526 years, 1,526 years before Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled all, of the pro all the prophecies Moses made about the coming Messiah. Then He fulfilled all of the prophecies made by the prophets, major and minor prophets. You know why that's important? Because that's to prove to you and me that the Jesus of Nazareth that's talked about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's preached about by Paul, is the authentic Jesus, the, the actual Messiah sent by God. It's impossible that any one person could fulfill all those prophecies. It's an absolute act of God proving to us that Jesus of Nazareth is the authentic Messiah sent to us by, by God Himself. So number one, we see that he was fulfilling prophecy. That's why he came on a donkey. But number two, he came not to make war, but to bring peace. You see, in the east, a donkey was a noble animal. Ahithophel uh, rode on a donkey in 2 Samuel 17, 23. the royal prince, the, the son of Saul, came to David riding on a donkey in 2 Samuel 19, 26. And the point is that a king came riding in on a horse when he was bent on making war. When he came to conquer, he would always come in on a horse. However, when he comes riding in on a donkey, he doesn't come to make war. He comes to bring peace. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was actually, since there was such a massive crowd as he came in, he was sending a very, very clear message to everybody. They were shouting, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. Save us now from the Romans. And he came running in on a, riding in on a donkey, waving at them, saying, I actually came not to make war with the Romans, to overthrow the oppression that, they, that you are oppressed with. No, I came to bring peace. What kind of peace? Peace between you and God. And that's his message he's preaching by riding on a donkey's colt. 
No one saw it at the time, not even the disciples, even though they should have known better. So the first thing we know is that he was fulfilling prophecy. The second thing we know is he came not to make war. He came to preach peace between you and God. But number three, he came identifying with a beast of burden. He came identifying with a beast of burden. And uh, in the Middle East, the donkey is also called a beast of burden. I have an image for you. Han, I don't know if you were able to download. Oh, there you go. That is, uh, when they traveled, they would travel with donkeys, and they would just load those donkeys. Now, you can go and Google it for yourself, but sometimes they stack those animals, <laughs> stack things on their backs so high, you can't believe that they can carry all that stuff. But he was a beast of burden. And this is exactly who Jesus was about to become to all those he was about to die for. He is our beast of burden. He is the one who carries our sin-induced burdens. He was going to take it upon himself and carry it on our behalf. This was the message Jesus was sending when he came riding in on a donkey's colt. Now let's go to the next verse. The next verse is verse 19 of John chapter 12. It says, So the Pharisees turned to one another and said, You see that you are not accomplishing anything. Look, the world has gone after him. So now, remember now, the, the Pharisees were trying to kill him. They were trying to silence him. They were trying to figure out a way, plot the plan on how to get him arrested and just get him out of the way. And then they also wanted to kill Lazarus uh, because Lazarus uh, proved that they were wrong <laughs> and Jesus was right. I mean, here's a man who is dead now walking around alive amongst everybody. And the whole world is now turning to Jesus. Now remember, the whole world, when they said the whole world, uh, we dealt with this uh, on a Wednesday once, uh, but the, when, when it says the world, like for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, there are seven different meanings, seven different uses of the, world, of the, of the word world. Here they were basically saying everybody, everybody, that our Jews are turning to Him, but in order for them to turn to Christ, they are doing what? They're turning their backs on us. We are losing ground. He's gaining ground. And everything you guys have tried, you're failing. But I want you to look at the words they use. This is so powerful. They have said, quote, look at that. You see that you are not accomplishing anything. Look. The world has gone after him. Even though we know he has come after the world, here they say the world has gone after him. But that's a significant statement. Even though they didn't mean it, they were prophesying something about what was about to happen right there and then. You see, God is so perfectly sovereign. He ordains all things. He orchestrates absolutely every moment in this entire event at Passover. In Acts chapter 4 verse 27, it shows how everybody plays into His plan. No matter how evil they were, they played into His plan. It says it right there in Acts chapter 4 27. Let's read it together. It says, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed God, and they were gathered together against him, both Herod and Pontius Pilate gathered against him. 
along with the Gentiles gathered against him and the people of Israel gathered against him to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. You see, everybody involved in the storyline of the Passover was preordained by God very clearly, very obviously, very evidently to happen exactly as he planned. Judas, ordained by God before the foundations of the world to be the son of perdition. Herod, Pilate played right into God's plan. The Gentiles, the people of Israel, the donkey's cult, the Roman soldiers, <laughs> to the smallest details, not breaking his legs, casting lots for his garments, every single detail ordained and orchestrated, predestined by God in order to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. If you just read the book of Isaiah, you'll see how amazing it is, how absolutely accurate every single moment of the Passover was. I mean, the fact that his legs weren't broken, the fact that they, that they gambled for his garments and they pierced his side, and they, I mean, every single detail prophesied hundreds of years before it even happened. How could it have been so accurate? Because God is sovereign. So here in John chapter 12, 19, God even has evil Pharisees make a statement that predicts God's sovereign plan, which is that the whole world, even the Gentiles, will be coming to Christ. Even the Gentiles were going to come to Christ. Now, when they said the whole world, hey, everything you've planned is not working. Look at this. The whole world is coming after him now. They were really referring to the Jews because all the Jews were turning to Jesus and away from them. But really, that was, a, that was God speaking through them because look at what happens in that very next verse. Verse 20, it says, Now, there were some Greeks. How's that? At the, at the Jewish Passover? Yeah, the whole world. I mean, did he not? He told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. And he will have, he will have from every single people's group and every single nationality and every single ethnicity, he will have from them all put together his bride. And he says, the whole world is turning to him. And they, the, the Greeks are there. For whatever reason, here they are at the, at the feast at the Jewish feast called Passover. And they were going up to worship at this feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks were really curious. And I was reading up on this. Now, the Greeks showed up everywhere because the Greeks didn't want anybody to know anything without them also knowing it. <laughs> Every word originated with the Greeks. <laughs> they showed up everywhere, and so here they were also. I heard of a man who raised somebody else from the dead. We have to know who this is. We are the thinkers. We are the philosophers. We are the ones who have knowledge. And so here they come. Watch this. And they go. Uh, these people came, from, came to Philip, verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and were making a request of him saying, Sir, 
We wish to see Jesus. And the reason they came to Philip was because Philip um, had a, a Greek background, a Greco background. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came to Jesus and told him. These Greeks were most likely proselytes to Judaism who came to participate in Passover. But in their desire to see Jesus, they stood directly opposed to the Jewish religious leaders who were trying to kill Jesus. Here are the Gentiles, not even Jews, the Gentiles interested in knowing who this was. And all the Jews, Jewish leaders wanted is wanted him dead. Isn't that interesting? That he came and he was going to blind Israel so that he could turn his focus on the Gentiles and bring in the Gentile world. And when he's brought in the Gentile world, he will then again cause the Jewish people to become very jealous and they will have their eyes opened eventually. MacArthur's study Bible says at the very moment when the Jewish authorities plotted to kill Jesus, Gentiles began to desire his attention. Let's go to the next verse. In John chapter 12, verse 23, it says, But Jesus answered them by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now remember, glorification means lifted up on a cross, crucified in front of the whole world for everyone to see, buried in, in, a, in a wealthy man's tomb in order to fulfill prophecy. Then he'll rise on the third day in order to fulfill prophecy. And then he will again be exalted into heaven to be on the right hand of the Father. This is his glorification. So here the Bible says, but after Jesus answered them by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Don't you just love these cryptic statements of Jesus? It's like, there he goes again. The disciples are like, oh gosh, really? Siri, where are you? <laughs> what does he mean by? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, he's talking about himself, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life, now he's talking about you and I, the one who loves his life loses it. Talking about you, Glenn. Talking about us individually. The one who loves his life loses it. That's the end game of that road of loving your life. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That's the end of that road. That's the end game of that. Not making a big deal about your own life. Making a big deal about Him with the life you have. <clears throat> I think, personally, my own opinion, that I think we've glorified our lives beyond what we should have. He says, the one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Verse 26. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now Jesus is all, he's talking about the exact same thing in every single one of those statements. Oftentimes when I read scriptures like this, it sounds like he's just, he keeps jumping ship from one, from one subject to the next. He's not. He's actually talking about the very same thing. If you, if you hold on to your life, keep it to yourself, you will lose it. If you give your life away, you will gain eternal life. And in so doing, you will follow Him. That's how you follow Him. I'll read it to you again. Because if you follow Him, you are serving Him, and God will honor you. So let me read it to you again. You'll see. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, you see, he wasn't looking for self-preservation. He wasn't looking to, to fulfill his life's potential. He wasn't looking for all that he could be as an individual. That wasn't his goal. He says, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. How was he going to be glorified? He was going to give himself away. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but... If it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it. The one who hates his life keeps it to eternal life. If anyone serves me this way, that's how he follows me. I follow Jesus. Okay, only if you've given your life away do you follow Jesus. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Let me just quickly point something out. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, go to verse 24 if you don't mind on the screens. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's giving a perfect picture of here's a grain of wheat. It has to fall and die to itself in order for there to ultimately be a harvest that comes from it. And he is saying to you and I that the greatest harvests from our lives comes when we have done what? Died to self. And when you, when you live for self, you will have no harvest at all whatsoever. So here Jesus teaches us by paradox. A paradox is not the same as a contradiction. And that's oftentimes what people think. Oh, like, oh, there's a contradiction. It's a paradox. Paradox is contradiction. It's not the same thing. You see, a contradiction means uh, only one of the two opposing statements can be true. The other one has to be false. That's a contradiction. And people say, oh, the Bible's filled with contradictions. No, the Bible has many paradoxes, but it doesn't have any contradictions. No contradictions. But if you understand that a paradox is different from a contradiction, you'll understand what it is. You see, a contradiction means one of the two that disagree with each other is, is right, the other one is wrong. One has to be wrong. But a paradox means two, is, is that when you have two different, different directions or opposing statements, both can be true. At the same time, that's a paradox. Seemingly contradictory, yet both true. I'll give you a few. Are you ready? Jesus says, Matthew eleven thirty, 30, my yoke is what? Easy. 
And then he goes, Matthew 7, 14, how difficult the road that leads to life. Which one's right? Both. <laughs> I thought you said it's easy. Oh, yeah, but it's difficult. How about this, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger, he says. John 6, 35. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. Which one's true? Both. If you understand how to interpret it. <laughs> how about this? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Let your light shine. Let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. How's this Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? He will be named the Prince of Peace. Jesus, Matthew 10, 35. Don't assume that I came to bring peace. <laughs> you see, in the dictionary, <clears throat> um, the definition of paradox is this, and I quote, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So what was Jesus teaching here? Let's look at the paradox he was telling us about. And this is where this whole entire example of Jesus walking into Jerusalem, risking his life, no self-preservation about him at all, none. Why not? Because his father is sovereign and he knows that his father ordains everything, even the moment he breathes his last. That's why he could just, on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, he comes in waving at everybody. I'm preaching a message and you're not even understanding, he, he says. It doesn't matter. Everything is timely. Judas did exactly what he needed to do. Pilate, exactly what he needed to do. Herod, playing right into God's hands. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Israelites, now the Greeks, everybody, right into God's hands to fulfill every single prophecy made of him a thousand, one and a half thousand years before he even came in. It's an amazing thing. So what was Jesus teaching us here? Something practical for you and I that we can wrap our, our minds around and, and wrap our arms around. Well, number one is that only by death comes life. Only by death comes life. You see, the grain of wheat was ineffective and unfruitful as long as it was preserved. As long as it was kept safe. As long as it was secure. It would remain ineffective and it would remain unfruitful. Many people live this way. The seed only became fruitful after it was thrown into the cold ground and buried there as if in a tomb. That's when it became fruitful. It was by the death of Christ that the church was made possible. Without His death, there would be no church. It was by the death of the martyrs that the church grew. The sacrifice that those men lived by is what challenges us today, encourages us today, makes, made people go like, wow, these people really believed what they taught. I mean, they really did. This is what happened with all the apostles. Every one of them, with the exception of John, martyred to death. 
Well, you know for a fact that those guys who walked with Jesus, they knew he wasn't crazy and they knew he wasn't a liar. Because who will die for somebody that you know was lying? Ah, he's a fraud, but you know what? I'm going to just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die on this hill. <laughs> Nobody was going to die for a fraud. And they knew him. They knew he wasn't a fraud. That's why they were willing to stand for that truth, even if it meant their own death. And that convinced the world. That convinces us today. They bought into him hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> Only by death comes life. It has always been men who have been prepared to die to themselves that great things were birthed. Uh, just hear this again. It was always because of men and women who, are, who were prepared to die to themselves and die to their own dreams and visions and die to their own uh, uh, um, you know, ambitions. Those who are the ones that birth great things into the world. But it becomes more personal than that. It is sometimes only when a man buries his personal ambitions that he becomes, a real, that he becomes of real use in the hands of God. I mean, think about how Jesus called every one of his disciples. Calls the one, he goes, uh, he goes, yeah, can I, can I quickly go and take care of business? Nope. Business, let it go. Leave the boat, leave everything. Really? And just come off to you? Yep. Wow. High price. How about can I first go bury my dad? Uh, let the dead bury the dead. Of course, that meant, you know, inheritance. And so Jesus knew that when men die to their own self-preservation, selfishness, instead of living for Him, they can never become fruitful. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have no goals in life. That's not what I'm saying. But if those goals are greater than living for Him, then that means you haven't died to the right thing. So the first we know is that only by death comes life. Number two, Jesus was teaching that only by spending life do we retain it. Only by spending life do we keep it. You see, you can accumulate money, right? And the interesting thing about money is you can accumulate money and you can hold it so that you could use that money at a later date, at a later time. That's how retirement works. You accumulate and accumulate and accumulate for use at some other time within life. You can accumulate possessions for enjoyment in years to come. It is possible to transfer it into a different timing, into a different time of life. You can accumulate stuff, but you cannot accumulate life. You cannot accumulate life and keep it, save it, or transfer it somewhere else. The only way to keep it is to give it away now. Eternal life only comes to those who die to self. The only way to make life 
valuable, just like you would think of a bank account and you keep accumulating and make it valuable and more valuable and more valuable. You see, you can't do that with life. The only way you can make life more and more valuable is by spending it. Spending it. Giving it away. And this was Jesus' message. Until that, that little seed falls into the ground and gets buried, dies to itself and gets buried, there cannot be a future life that comes from it. And he was saying, this is what I'm about to do, and I need you to follow me in it. You see, many times people say, well, Jesus died so that we can have life and life more abundantly. Well, that's not really what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches Jesus died so you can die with him, and he rose so you can rise with him. But many people just want to be, just want to rise with him in glory, uh, in glory without ever first dying to self. Does this make sense? Everybody wants to add Jesus to their life and make it so much better. But this message Jesus is teaching right here, it says, unless you die and bury yourself like a seed, there is no future harvest for you. You will, you will live alone forever. It's the only life you'll have. You will lose it. But on the other hand, if you sow that life, if you bury that life in Christ, then you can rise in Christ in life. Eternal life only comes to those who die to self. And so the only way to make life valuable, give it away, spend it, serve Him, obey Him. Not once, but many times, Jesus insisted that man who hoarded this life must end in losing it. And that man who spent his life must in the end gain it. I just want to read to you quick so you can see it. It's all over. Mark 8.35. And it's almost word for word repeated over and over and over again. Mark 8.35. For whoever, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Matthew 16.25 says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 9.24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. Matthew 10, 39. The one who has found his life will lose it. And you know those guys who run off to California to find themselves? This is their verse. The one who has found his life, I have found myself. The one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. Luke 17, 33, whoever strives to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. I mean, he says it over and over and over again, trying to make a point. So just think for a moment of everything humanity, you know, would have lost had it not been for men and for women who were prepared to let go of their personal safety. Think about everything we would not have today if everybody lived for self-preservation. If everybody lived for comfort, if everybody lived towards only convenience and not self-sacrifice, 
Think about everything we would have lost and we would not have had. We, as a matter of fact, live in the benefit of people who were selfless. Think about everything we would not have had had people lived towards their own security. If everybody was preoccupied with their personal self-ambition, their personal ambition, think about everything we would not have had today. The world owes everything to people who recklessly spend their strength and gave themselves to God and to others. No person in history who lived only for himself is remembered with fondness. Think about that for a second. Not one person you can think of who lived selfishly is remembered with fondness. Most are not even remembered at all. The ones you know of, <laughs> the ones you know of is because of their sacrifice or is because of their total selfishness. Those are the only two reasons you know people. For most part, the ones who lived for themselves will be forgotten. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he came to himself, who he came to give himself away, and he came to give himself away willingly. You see, nobody, nobody should have their arm twisted in serving God. Nobody. Now we can plead with people and say, please, I beg you, think this through. We have to plead with people. Here's the gospel. Understand it. Let me go through it with you again. Let me, let me go through it with you backwards, upside down, over and over and over and over again. Like once somebody came to George Whitfield, and um, he was during the Great Awakening, one of the leaders, and somebody said to George Whitfield, Sir, please, could you please stop preaching about you must be born again? I mean, can you maybe go to another subject? Why is it that you just... You, preaching the same sermon over and over again. And he said to the lady, it's because you must be born again. Because <laughs> that's when that seed falls to the ground, dies to self, comes alive to God, and produces mighty harvests. But here Jesus, he comes and he gives himself willingly. And if we are going to be followers of Jesus... We couldn't give ourselves begrudgingly, right? We couldn't be, uh, you know, hate every moment of serving God's body and, ah, uh, you know, this song again, okay. <laughs> Remind me to come later next week <laughs> if I was going to come at all. And so, you know, remember Jesus gave himself willingly and then he said, now follow me. Not in just what I did, but in how I did it. He calls us to follow Him. Jesus did not die so you can live. No, He died so that you can die with Him. He, that's what baptism is about. Baptism is, is um, like my... My ring, my wedding band, this wedding band does not make me married. This is only a reflection. This only tells you that I'm married. And that's baptism. Baptism does not save you. It's just you telling the world 
you're saved. And how are you saved? How are you saved? You go into the water grave, you first die to self, and then after you've down into the grave, then you are resurrected out of the grave in Christ. And most people, many people, they believe that they can be resurrected in Christ without first having dying to self. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus and for orchestrating so perfectly every move, every person, every statement made. Uh, the, the garment, everything was so perfectly timed as Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who makes atonement for us once for all time right there during Passover while all those lambs were being slaughtered that week the Lamb of God was slaughtered that week and He fulfills He fulfills that atonement for us Thank you, Father, for drawing us to yourself. It takes God to want God. While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, especially those of you watching online, if you know that you need to make right with God, I have three things you need to know. You were promised by God that if you knock and you keep on knocking, the door will be opened. That if you seek and you keep on seeking, you will find that if you ask and you keep on asking, you will receive the answer. You might say, Jacques, how do I know God is drawing me? Have faith in Jesus Christ. That's proof that God is drawing you. How do I know God has called me? Have faith in Jesus Christ. That's proof that God has called you. How do I know that I am chosen by God? Have faith in Jesus Christ. That's proof of everything. Have faith in Jesus Christ. And so today I plead with every person who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ that this is what was preached during the book of Acts. The apostles preached repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that it's important for you to take that responsibility upon yourself and not put it on me to help you make right with God. You are the one that needs to make right with God. And we were told very specifically, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And if you find that you're not, do something about it. Have faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are justified by faith and faith alone. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Did you get something out of the Word this morning?